you for listening to Sozo Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information on Sozo Church, visit sozospokane.com. Sozo Church. Good morning, Sozo Church. Um, my name is Robert Levitt. Um, my wife and I serve as a couple of the associate pastors here at the church, and it is awesome to have you all here this morning. Um, I'm used to getting up here and telling you about where the bathrooms are and uh, then like sitting back down. Uh, so, but today, uh, you're stuck with me until the worship team kicks me off. So, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see when that, uh, when that happens. But, uh, uh, let's let's jump right in this morning and see what God would speak through God's word. Um, and today, I, I know some of you are thinking, yes, someone else is preaching. That means that he's finally going to push us forward into John 7. <laughs> Wrong. Um, I'm actually backtracking us, so Mark may have to make up some ground over the next few weeks. Um, but uh, I promise you at some point over the next couple of years, we will make it into John 7 and possibly beyond. So um, just not today, just not today. So uh, let's go ahead and jump in. Uh, would you all stand for the reading of God's word? Uh, we are going to be in John 6 uh, big surprise, big surprise. Uh, starting in verse 15 here. All right. Now, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, that's Jesus, and to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. They were frightened, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went into Capernaum, seeking Jesus." When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that, uh, that, that you, you speak to us through your word. 
that we encounter you through your word. And God, I ask that you would, would speak to us today, that you would attune our ears to hear what it is that you are speaking, that you would help our eyes to see what you are doing in this world. God, I ask that, that we might, might be transformed by, in the hearing of your word by, the, by it going deep within our hearts, deep within our souls, that you might transform us, that we might be better able to bring glory to you, that we might be better able to share your love and your grace and your goodness with this world. And we thank you for it, and we thank you for what you are doing in this house today and for this opportunity to worship together, to, 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 to encounter you in this place when there are so many around this world who do not have that opportunity. And we don't take that lightly. So God, we ask that you would encounter us, that you would speak, and that you would be above all else glorified. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name and by your spirit, God. Amen. All right. Now, it gives me great joy. Don't, don't sit down quite yet. It gives me great joy in this moment to say, because I'm an introvert, I'm only going to make you high five four people um, down from our normal five. And it gives me great joy because this means that Mark has to participate in it as well. So <laughs> go ahead, say hi to someone, high, uh, high five a few people around you, and then grab a seat. All right. So, so we're, we're in the series going through the Gospel of John uh, that, that you may believe. And so I, uh, obviously, as, as we've already uh, Ray learned today, we're, we're, we're going to be studying this passage to see, uh, to see some unique aspects of what John is trying to do here. Um, this is a passage that I think that we, uh, we frequently skip over. Um, and and we'll, we'll get to that uh, in, in a minute here. Uh, if you are taking notes today, uh, I want to talk with you under the title of Authority and Chaos. Um, so, uh, upon first reading this passage, it, it seems as if this section of text is, is simply kind of an innocuous travel narrative, uh, serving only to explain how Jesus and the disciples get from one side of the sea to the other. Um, like, it'd be weird if it's just, whoop, like, there's, there's no, no story in between. So it seems like it just acts as that kind of connective tissue, which it does, but, and there's also less to the, this narrative in, in John, this, this kind of water-walking narrative of Jesus and the disciples crossing the sea, than there is in some of the other Gospels. So there's, there's, there's less here. Now, that doesn't mean that it's less important, but I think that's something that we need to pay attention to when we're asking, why is it that John pared back some of this? What, what is it that, that John is trying to communicate here? Uh, and so while it's easy to read past this account quickly, I think if we do that, we miss the meaning and the depth which John has embedded into these short few verses. Uh, so... To give some context here, this comes right after Jesus multiplying the fishes and the loaves for the 5,000. Uh, it says there were 5,000 men uh, plus uh, women and children. Uh, and so Jesus does this incredible miracle. And as we saw in verse 15, the crowd makes this wrongful attempt 
to make Jesus their earthly king. He was already the divine king. They tried to make him their earthly king. This, as we see later in John 6, was at least in part a result of them falling in love with the signs of Jesus or the earthly provision of Jesus and not Jesus himself. They were looking for something qualitatively different than what Jesus came to give. They were looking for the blessings of the king, not the person and the divine kingdom. They wanted the kingdom without the king. So they stopped at the sign rather than following it to its destination. They believed that Jesus was going to deliver them from the Roman Empire rather than a far greater kind of deliverance that Jesus was actually coming to offer. So Jesus leaves the crowd and, and even his disciples, and he goes to a solitary mountain to pray. And we see in the other gospel accounts that Jesus sent his disciples down to the water to, to get into a boat to go across the sea. And there's in this text a sense of kind of confusion once they get there, though, that, hey, where's Jesus? Isn't he going to come? Uh, when, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into the boat, and started across the sea. Uh, it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So they, they're, they're wondering why it is that Jesus had not yet come. Now, many commentators believe that the reason that Jesus sent them away at that same time is, was to get them away from the chaos of the crowd, because this crowd who had just seen this incredible miracle that was trying to make Jesus their king, that implies that there were actually the seeds of an insurrection brewing within this crowd to try and overthrow the Roman Empire. They thought that Jesus was that kind of, of, of Messiah. So we come to this text. When they get into the boat and they start across the sea, and I, I want to return to this part. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So beyond the plain and surface meaning of the text, I think John also points us here to a deeper spiritual truth. Uh, now, I want to be careful with this idea because we walk a narrow path when we, uh, when we approach Scripture. When, when we come to a, a, a text, it's really easy uh, to read things into that text, um, if you have, uh, is anyone here that person and, excuse me, does anyone here know that person that reads too much into things, <laughs> that, that takes something and, and just completely, um, uh, yeah, don't, don't, don't raise your hands or, or point. Um, so Within the church, this is the person who uh, assigns meaning, uh, as we frequently joke about, to the toes of the Antichrist. Uh, they're probably the same person that was super into uh, the, the Bible code in the 90s and early 2000s, along with equal letter distancing and discovering all the secret codes of the Bible. Um, they're the person that only wants to do nothing besides reading the book of Revelation, um, and usually with poor interpretation, uh, but that's an, another topic. And and uh, somehow, in a lot of these cases, when reading scripture, the focus of every biblical story ends up being themselves. This is kind of one ditch for us. 
reading into the text, meaning that is not reasonably within the text. So we have to be careful with how we, how we approach these things. Uh, when we do that, we're reading the text irresponsibly. The other text is to think that there can never be meaning in the text apart from the plain reading of it. So the, you, you can go kind of too far in either direction here. Now, St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, or as, as we say in our house, Hippo for some reason, I'm not sure, uh, so says this in, in a book, uh, in one of his, his many books titled On Christian Teaching. He says, so every sign is also a thing, since what is not a thing does not exist. But it is not true that everything is also a sign. So everything is a thing, but not everything is a sign. So we have to be careful not to read everything as being a sign. Uh, so that is kind of the, the, the middle road that we need to approach in this. So another way to think about this would be to uh, think of this as approaching scripture as an archaeologist rather than as someone who is strip mining. Uh, if, you, uh, if, you, if you think of an archaeologist, they go to a piece of ground, they go to uh, something that they want to investigate, and they, they carefully dig it up. They carefully examine. They want to find the story that is within this piece of ground. They want that ground to, to, to enlighten them, not bring their own kind of understand to it. Whereas someone who's strip mining is going to exploit that ground and tear it up without any regard for what's in it for the sake of personal gain. We can do both of those with scripture. And yes, I realize that uh, someone who's strip mining and an archeologist probably would not be concerned with the same exact piece of ground. I understand that broken metaphor. We're using it, move on. Uh, so, uh, so then now that, <laughs> with those caveats, uh, John often structures his narrative and specifically the language that he uses uh, to allude to a deeper truth within the story. And it's here that we come to his explanation that it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. John seems to be equating darkness with the absence of Jesus. But how do we come to this conclusion? This is not the only place that John utilizes this type of juxtaposition. Uh, and to understand this, I want us to go back to John's prologue. See, Marks, you have to cover a lot of ground to get back from John 1 now. Um, but like, no! Uh, so I want us to, to jump, jump back into John 1 here. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him and believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, it's time for a drink of water. So here we find in this prologue that Jesus is drawing, is using this symbolism of Jesus being light. And he talks about how uh, Jesus is light and, uh, and, and the darkness could not overcome him. Which means if there is darkness, there must be some sort of absence. Now, He's established kind of this symbolic, this symbology within, within the text. Now, when John explains our passage from John 6, that they were in the boat and it was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them, he's not only speaking about the time of day, but rather a deeper spiritual reality as well, that the absence of Christ for his disciples is darkness. And I mean, how often is this the basis for our own despair and anxiety? Uh, we, we lose sight of Jesus and the darkness creeps in. We, uh, things get chaotic and we forsake our time with God. Instead of clinging to the light, we, we press it away. We set aside our relationship with Jesus and wonder why we are engulfed in darkness. While this isn't ultimately what the disciples did here, because as we'll see, they're following the words of Jesus, we row out into the middle of the sea with no light to guide us. But then the disciples in the middle of the sea find that the sea became rough, like became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Uh, in the other gospel accounts, we see that they were consumed with fear. Mark 6.48 states that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. Now, from our modern perspective, when we think of the sea, we think of it from a place of relative safety. We think that there's a storm on the sea, so we're going to go into, the, uh, uh, in, into our cabin on the cruise ship. We might, have, we might get some motion sickness, some seasickness, and then we'll be good. That's, uh, for a lot of us, that's our concept of the sea. That's how we understand this, this text. Uh, and so we, we come to this and we think, oh yeah, they're, they're scared, but they'll be fine. But within the ancient imagination, the sea was not simply water. It was, it was not just a large body of water, but rather it, uh, it was something that could consume you with its waves. The wind and weather were thought to be controlled by invisible cosmic forces, uh, in the Greco-Roman world, uh, the god Poseidon was seen as being this, this god who, who, when you were on the sea, it was by his whim and whimsy that you would either survive or die and become fish food, uh, whether you would feed the, the, the delightful creatures of the sea. So that is one a part of the ancient imagination regarding what it looks like to, 
to understand the sea. I don't know if any of you have ever read Homer's Odyssey uh, with, with Odysseus uh, constantly being, uh, being drawn, at, at, he's shipwrecked time and time again as a result of Poseidon's grudge against him. This was a common conception in the ancient world of what the sea entailed. Others in this period associated the sea with the goddess Tiamat, uh, from, from another Babylonian creation narrative called the Enuma Elish. And in, the, in that story, uh, the, the earth was created, the oceans were created by this goddess being ripped apart and her, essentially her blood and entrails becoming the ocean. And it was something that could consume you at any moment and destroy your very being. It, it was a place of violence and, and, and chaos but then, so this is how the ancient world might have thought about the sea. And remember, the Gospel of John is being written. Why do I bring this up? Because the Gospel of John is being written to the Greco-Roman world. It's being written to people who are steeped in these stories and these ideas and, and who are drenched in this type of thinking. Thus to sail upon the sea in their less than stellar boats uh, was to put themselves at the mercy of these forces, these violent and powerful forces. So, the sea is something that is completely out of your control. You have no authority over this thing. It, it shows imminent danger that could swallow you whole. And it represents the cosmic forces and ancient gods of chaos. Now, the disciples, they're in a desperate situation. They're in the middle of the storm. It's dark, and they are separated from the only one who can guide them through that storm in the midst of the darkness. So then in verse 19, we come across uh, where, where it says, when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. So it's here in the middle of their despair, in the middle of their anxiety, that the light of love appears. That this one who, who John, uh, John has already established is this immense light that pushes back darkness, that overcomes chaos, is here, walking on top of the sea, trampling the sea, walking on top of this untamable force. The light has come and they are terrified, but who wouldn't be? <laughs> if, uh, I, I think it's hard for us sometimes to, to, to put ourselves in the, truly put ourselves in the shoes of these people, but to understand the, the terror that of not only being in the midst of this, uh, this hellacious storm, but to see someone walking towards you on the water. <laughs> I think we can relate to the disciples in this moment. We have all had those situations where it seems like everything is going to hell around us and the waters are rising. The question is whether we are clinging to the light. Whether, whether we are abiding in the one who can sustain us in the midst of the storm or whether we're allowing ourselves to be overcome by the fear invoked by the storm around us. 
now Jesus. He comes to them and he says a very simple thing that almost concludes this narrative in, in, in John's gospel. He says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. This powerful sentence in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the storm. But here's the thing. I think this is a crap translation. And I want to show you why. Because I think that John is doing something far deeper here than what we actually see in this text or in, in this translation. So a few weeks ago, Mark explored the Greek phrase, ego eimi, which simply means I am. Uh, this is a common phrase throughout all the Greek New Testament and, uh, and the Greek translation of uh, the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And uh, this, so ego simply means is the Greek word for I, and uh, eimi is the Greek word for to be or am. So, uh, so when, when we see in, in the Septuagint, which is, like I said, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, we see when God reveals himself to Moses, we see that he reveals himself as ego eimi, I am. I am. Now, this is used in other places as well, but there are certain con uh, sentence constructions and usages that enhance the meaning of this phrase, and John frequently uses these uh, throughout his gospel. I'm, I'm not interested in turning today into a lesson in uh, Greek, Greek grammar and syntax because uh, at least 99% of you aren't interested in that either. Um, so, uh, but it is amazing how much has been written about the, the, the simple word ego or I. Uh, it makes me think back to, uh, you know, uh, great uh, presidential scandals in the past. Just depends on what your definition of is, is. Um, but uh, what I'm interested, uh, that's an aside. Uh, we're, we're not going there today. Uh, what I am interested in is you understanding that this phrase, I am, is the way that Yahweh introduces God's self to Moses. It's the way that, that God refers to God's self throughout the Old Testament, I am. When, when Moses uh, uh, asks, who should I say sent me when I go to Pharaoh? Say, I am, that I am sent you. So this is a key part of the revelation of God. And some of you already see where this is going. So... Here, we've got the English, we've got the Greek, and then just some breakouts towards the bottom here. If you read this passage, what Jesus actually says is, I am, do not fear. There is no reference point for it is I. There's, there's, this is, now some commentators think you can read it into the text. Uh, this is a debated uh, uh, issue here. But here's, what we actually see in the text is ego eimi, I am. So Jesus walks up on the sea 
over the forces of chaos to this boat and simply says, I am, do not be afraid. So, he's saying, do not fear, I am in control, do not be anxious, I am God. It may look dark, but you have not been abandoned. But this fearlessness that they're supposed to feel at the side of Jesus comes directly from a recognition of who he is. Not just as a person, as a human, but as God. Because when Jesus says, I am, he is saying that he is the God of the covenant. He is saying that he, uh, he, he does not come up to them and start explaining his elaborate plan for how he's going to get them back to shore safely. Um, and, you know, I'm, here are all the steps, here are all the details. Um, it's it's going gonna, it's gonna to be great. Instead, he simply says, I am, and his authority is established. Too often we read the water walking story and we make it about ourselves. We, we focus on uh, like the gospel account of Peter. Uh, and and we, take, we take the story of Peter and we make this story about, you just need to step out and take a step of faith. Uh, step out of the boat. When that's not, especially within John, the emphasis here. Because he, the emphasis here in John and this makes sense when we look at the context of what John is trying to accomplish all throughout his gospel of trying to establish that Jesus is God. It, trying to establish that Jesus is fully human and fully God. Uh, that when, when he says, I am, he is actually making reference and is elaborating on the fact that, that this is the same, this... <laughs> The God who is the man who is coming to you on the sea right now is the same one who led the Israelites out of Egypt. It's the same one who led the who led the Exodus and is now in turn almost leading them into a second Exodus. And that's so much richer than simply gotta have faith, step out of the boat, which is true. That's not, that's not wrong. That's not a wrong reading of the text. Uh, but it misses that in order to not be afraid, we have to recognize the character and the authority of Christ. We have to recognize the character and authority of the one who is walking to us on the waves in the midst of the storm. So while the translation is somewhat debated, I think it makes sense within the context of what John is doing to establish the, the godhood of Jesus right as he goes into this narrative of, of saying, I am the bread of life. It is me who sustains you. So Jesus walking on the water is not something that came out of the blue, uh, but rather it is deeply rooted in imagery from the Hebrew Bible. So I want to take a look at just a couple of different places where we see this imagery used in the Old Testament. So Job, when he answers one of his friends calling for his repentance, he, he actually, or the, the way that he responds to this friend is by speaking about the character of God. So in Job 9, 8 through 11, it says, "'Who alone stretched out the heavens "'and trampled the waves of the sea?' 
Who made the bear in Orion, the Pleiades, and the chamber of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me, and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. So, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? We see that the God of the Old Testament is established as one who has authority over the sea. So, this imagery of Yahweh trampling upon the waves. Then Psalm 77 says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies gave forth thunder, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings rumbled or lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. You see, the psalmist is proclaiming the authority of God over all the waters through recounting the story of the Exodus. So this, this idea of, of, of Jesus walking across the sea is actually establishing another miracle to show his godhood, to show, to relate him, to, to show these people that they are in the presence of the God of the Exodus. And that is a powerful story. By trampling the waves and calming the storm, by walking on the sea and the simple proclamation of I am, Jesus is not only saying, but showing that he has authority over chaos. He walks upon the darkness. He tramples the hopelessness embodied by the waves, threatening to engulf the boat. The gods of the ancients bear no authority over the one whom John calls light. And it's this authority that in Matthew 8, 27 leads his disciples to exclaim after in another instance where Jesus has, has calmed the wind and the waves, it causes them to exclaim, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? I want you to see that it's the same God who, according to Job, trampled the waves of the sea. It's the same God who, according to the psalmist, makes the waters afraid and the deeps tremble, and the same God who led the Israelites through the Red Sea. But one of the really interesting things about this story is that it's not as if the darkness, the raging sea, and the fear of the disciples caught Jesus by surprise. He wasn't just out for his nightly water walk and happened to find the disciples, you know, <laughs> thinking, you know, man, it's good that I happened to be out here tonight. I almost lost my team. That would have been embarrassing. <laughs> have to find a new 12. <laughs> All right. No. Remember, Jesus told them to go across the sea. We see this in Mark 6, 45. He also chose to have them go alone. 
So this is where the wholeness of Jesus's intention and John's understanding of this account seems to come into focus. Jesus not only allowed, but commanded his disciples to embark on the dangerous journey into the darkness. To cross the thrashing sea, all because they, like us, needed to understand the power and authority of Jesus. To know that it is him who is the light that pierces the darkness. It is him who tramples the chaotic seas. It is him who is the same God who led the Israelites out of Egypt that would meet them, the disciples, there in their time of fear, anxiety, and distress. Thus, it was for their good that they might recognize Jesus as the light of love in the darkness and Jesus's glory that they might be awestruck by the authority of this man over chaos. And this is also where Jesus meets us. We learn from this text that Jesus does not lead us around every storm. He doesn't prevent us from experiencing times of despair and anxiety and distress and fear. In fact, we are often led directly into the heart of the storm. Not so that we would be destroyed, but rather that we might realize the depth of love and peace, which comes only by way of the light which pierces the darkness. That we might come to find the hope that comes from encountering the one we are searching for, who meets us with the words, I am, do not fear. That by his very presence, that by his very being, fear might be vanquished. That despair might be vanquished. <clears throat> Yet we're stubborn. <laughs> we refuse to accept that God is really as good as God is. And thus we fear that we are without hope in the storm. But it is in the midst of all of our crap, in the midst of our storm, in the midst of the raging ocean that, that we find the goodness of God revealed. When Jesus gets into their boat, when their issue of proximity to Jesus is remedied, it is then that we see the last miracle of this passage. It is in their recognition of Jesus's goodness and authority that they seemingly instantaneously pass to the shore. For it is in remaining in proximity to Jesus that we are carried through the storm. Just like the disciples. I'd ask the worship team to go ahead and come on back up. So, this is a... Like I said, this is a bit of a different reading of this text from what is normally done. But I think it leads us to a place of awe. It leads us to a place of wonder when we actually encounter the God who comes to us on the sea. When we stop viewing Jesus Jesus's miracles as a party trick and we start seeing them as a connection to, uh, between him and the, the God of the Exodus, the God of covenant, the God who sustains us. 
And so we always, we always believe that when we, when we read scripture, we, we are not meant just to hear it, but we're also meant to respond. We're also meant to, uh, to, to allow it to change our hearts. So for some in this room, you're in the midst of what feels like a storm. Everything feels dark and chaotic, but you have never experienced what it is like to encounter the light which overcomes all darkness. You've never encountered Jesus. You're so consumed with looking around at the storm, you're looking around at the chaos around you, that you look right past the God of the universe who is standing right beside the boat. Today, I wanna encourage you to stop row, row, rowing your boat desperately into the hurricane and to repent and to believe that Jesus can save you. The one who, who has made everything loves you and wants to lead you into new life. He wants to lead you through this storm. He, as we see in this text, maybe he led you into this storm that you might come to a place of recognizing who he really is. That you might come to a place of recognizing the goodness, the graciousness of the God of the universe who tramples on chaos, who tramples on the sea, who breaks apart despair and brings the ship to shore. I want, if you're, if you're in that boat, (laughs) it's horrible, I'm sorry. (laughs) Working on my dad jokes. Remember these words which we read earlier from John 1. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he believed in his name, and he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father full of grace and truth. See, you're being welcomed today with the gift of becoming a child of God. And if that's you, I would encourage you. We're gonna have a, a prayer team over in, uh, uh, along the side over here in just a couple minutes. And ask someone to pray with you. Ask someone to help you to, to figure out what it means to trust Jesus, to turn from your sin and to trust that he is life and that he is good. Now, I'll have everyone go ahead and just stand. For others, maybe you've experienced the light of Christ, but you're getting so overwhelmed by fear, anxiety, and depression, or simply the weight of life you've forgotten, that not only is Jesus in the boat with you, but he is working something in you in the midst of the storm. And so for those, I want you to allow yourself to be awed by Jesus in the midst of the storm this week. 
I want you to remind yourself when it looks like everything is chaotic, when it looks like everything is out of control, that, that Jesus has authority, that Jesus is there, that Jesus is present, that Jesus has not left you, he has not for, forsaken you, but rather he is there with you, the light in the darkness. He is coming to you saying, I am, do not fear. Secondly, I'd encourage you to begin asking the question in the midst of, of, of whatever is going on. Ask the question, God, what are you working in the midst of this? What are you working in the midst of this? It changes your whole posture. It changes your whole perspective. And lastly, here in this moment, I want you to take a deep breath and hear the words I am, do not fear. I am, do not fear. Let the very presence of Christ lead you to a place of peace. Step back from the busyness of life, the tyranny of the urgent to simply rest in Christ. Hearing these words and trusting that Jesus is carrying you to shore, leading you through for your good and his glory. So we're gonna enter back into worship here. And as we do, I would encourage you to just breathe. <laughs> to stop looking around at everything that's going on and just breathe and let Jesus guide you. Let Jesus give you rest. Let Jesus strip away the anxiety. Let Jesus strip away the despair. So we're gonna do that through worship. We're also gonna do that through communion, through a, re a, a reminder of the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, the sacrifice that Christ made for each and every one of us. Now, we've, we've got a gluten-free station at the, uh, as, as gluten-free as we can make it at the white table over here and the other three uh, have some gluten-free wafers as well, but just take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. If if this is something that is, is reserved for believers, if you're not quite there yet, that's fine. We would encourage you to get there. We would encourage you to place your trust in Jesus today. But this is open to all believers. Just remain in your seat if, if you're not there yet. And that's perfectly fine. And then, like I said, we're gonna have a prayer team over along the side over here as well. If, if you want prayer for anything in your life, I would ask you to go and respond to the Lord in that way. So God, I thank you. I thank you that you, Jesus, that you have revealed yourself as a God of authority that there is even the most terrifying of things, that God, that you have authority in the midst of that, that you have power in the midst of that. And God, I ask that you would, uh, you, those of us who have been hardened to, to a sense of awe, those of us who have lost our wonder regarding who you are, that we have lost our, our sense of, of, of the greatness of who you are, God that you would restore our hearts today, that you would help us to see you, 
that we would not uh, be looking around at everything around us and panicking and being filled with anxiety and fear, but rather we would set our eyes on you as the light of life that pushes back all darkness. So God, we thank you what you're working in our hearts. We thank you what you're working in this house. And we give you all glory and we give you all honor in Jesus' name and by your spirit, God. Amen. Let's worship.